an Israelite, perhaps an Israelite child, practices the writing of Hebrew in an agricultural, astonishingly literate society thousands of years ago, highlighting simultaneously Jewish ingenuity and Jewish connection to the Holy Land. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 77, The Fragmentation of Israel and the Marvel of Jewish Literacy. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. The Archaeological Museum in Istanbul contains treasures of antiquity, including several that relate profoundly to the Bible. The most famous is the plaque celebrating the creation of Hezekiah's tunnel during the war with Assyria, a tale that we will discuss later in our journey through the Bible. This truly is an invaluable find one which Israel, rightly, has long desired to be brought back to the Holy Land. But the museum also contains a less famous Israelite artifact that is, I believe, truly inspiring as well. It is a tablet made of limestone containing several lines of Semitic script, and it is called the Gezer Calendar, dating to around, or perhaps right after, the period of the Judges. The writing is crude, and what it says is simple. Two months of gathering, two months of sowing, two months of late sowing, month of pulling flax, month of barley harvest, month when everything else is harvested, two months of pruning, month of summer fruit. That is all. And then, in the margin, the name of the one doing the writing is given to us, an Israelite appellation, Aviyah. What is this object? Clyde Fant and Mitchell Reddish in their book Lost Treasures of the Bible inform us that, quote, One theory has described this tablet as an official document somehow related to the taxation of agricultural products, but the crudeness of the lettering, coupled with the numerous variations in the formation of repeated letters, makes it most likely that the document was not produced in official circles, but as a practice exercise in writing, end quote. Why then is it significant? They also tell us that, quote, regarded as the work of a schoolboy on a practice tablet, the seven lines of the Gezer calendar have an importance far beyond their content. Scholars generally refer to this agricultural calendar as the oldest existing example of the Hebrew language, end quote. The artifact, in other words, is a testimony to Israelite writing and perhaps evidence of learning and literacy of a child in an ancient agricultural society, a child named Aviyah, which means God is my father. The Gezer calendar is therefore extraordinary and will allow us to understand why In the midst of a depressing tale in the book of Judges, we can actually discover one of the most astonishing sentences in the Bible. In our previous discussion, we saw how Devorah, in her exultant song, reflected not only exultation at her victory, but also her deep disappointment with the tribes that did not rally to her call. Moses' words, shall your brothers wage war and you sit here, echoed unanswered throughout her era. Thus, the fragmentation of Israel is already made quite clear. But so far, we have seen only disunity, not intra-Israelite violence. What will follow will be worse. Israel embraces the worship of Baal, a pagan god, and his punishment. God allows Israel to be persecuted by Midian. But again, salvation is sent by the Almighty. An angel appears to a man of Menasheh by the name of Gideon and informs him that he has been chosen to save Israel from its enemies but that first he must illustrate his own opposition to paganism. Chapter 6, verse 25. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take thy father's young bullock and the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father has, and cut down the Asherah that is by it, 
and build an altar to the Lord thy God upon the top of this strong point, on the level place, and take the second bullock, and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which thou shalt cut down. Gideon thus uproots both his father's pagan altar and the Asherah, the tree that his father had been worshipping. Gideon then assembles a large army of 22,000 men, and the Almighty informs him that this is too many, because it was important that God's salvation be made manifest, miraculously in the forthcoming victory. After whittling the army down to 10,000, God commands Gideon to further minimize his forces by noting those that bow down in order to drink from the river, perhaps a sign that they were accustomed to worshiping Baal and are therefore disqualified. Then, finally, with a mere 300 men, Gideon defeats Midian. As two of the Midianite rulers, Zevach and Salmuna, flee with their armies, Gideon chases after them. And now, another note of Israelite fragmentation is introduced. Gideon seeks sustenance from his men from two Israelite cities, Sukkot and Pnuel, but they refuse to help him. Judges 8.4 And Gideon came to the Jordan and passed over, he and the 300 men that were with him, faint, yet pursuing them. And he said to the men of Sukkot, Give, I pray you, loaves of bread to the people that follow me, for they are faint. And I am pursuing after Zevach and Samuna, kings of Midian. And the princes of Sukkot said, Are the hands of Zevach and Samuna now in thy hand, that we should give bread to the army? And Gideon said, Therefore, when the Lord has delivered Zevach and Samuna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the horns of the wilderness and with briars. And he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them likewise. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkot had answered him. And he spoke also to the men of Penuel, saying, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Gideon then does as he has promised. He returns following victory, tortures the leaders of Sukkot, and annihilates Penuel. For the first time since entering the land, and indeed for the first time in the Hebrew Bible, Israelites truly kill Israelites. Listen carefully to how this is described in the text. Chapter 8, verse 13. And Gideon the son of Joash returned from the battle from the ascent of Cheres, and caught a young boy of the men of Sukkot, and inquired of him, and he wrote down for him. In other words, this boy from Sukkot, the Hebrew word used is na'ar, boy or young man, writes Gideon a list, a list that Gideon will now use for revenge. The chapter continues. And he came to the men of Sukkot and said, Behold Zevach and Salmuna with whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zevach and Salmuna now in thy hand, that we should give bread to thy men that are weary? And he took the elders of the city, and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he chastised the men of Sukkot. And he beat down the tower of Penuel and slew the men of the city. So the Bible tells us, and we must note the significance of these locations. Penuel is where Jacob first wrestled with the angel, and Sukkot is where Jacob set camp, right after meeting Esau himself. They are two cities that bespeak the very origin of Jacob's national name, Israel, Israel, which essentially means, for you have ably engaged angelic beings and men. That is where Israelite identity came into being. A nation is united by remembrance of its origin, what Lincoln called the mystic chords of memory. This story indicates that for Israel, those chords of memory are now broken. Two cities of Israelites utterly refused to help a military savior of Israel, Gideon. And then this very same general comes back and engages in violence against his fellow Israelites. Disunity has descended far beyond that of Devorah's age. And this means that Israelites killing Israelites en masse 
will ultimately become possible, something that we will see later in the book of Judges. There is, therefore, reason to be enormously depressed by this tale of Gideon. And yet, in the midst of reading the story, it is also easy to entirely overlook something absolutely astonishing. And I am grateful to Rabbi Sachs for pointing this out. The sentence about the child in Sukkot writing a list of the elders for Gideon does not at first seem all that interesting. But, Rabbi Sachs reflects, it becomes fascinating when we realize the following, that in ancient Israel, it was logical for someone like Gideon to assume that a random youth seized on the road could read and write. One implication of this story, then, is that this was not a society in which only the priests or the nobles were literate. Israel was a place where education was compulsory. And this came from the fact that it was built into the Shema itself. Vishinantam Livanecha, you shall teach the Torah to your children, God commanded. Teach them to read it, to learn it. Israelite identity is founded on learning and teaching. For Rabbi Sachs, this may well be the meaning of God's words to Moses on the eve of the giving of the Torah at Sinai. You shall be for me, God said, Amamlechet Kohanim, a nation of royal priests. In most ancient societies, Knowledge was the province of the priesthood and of royalty, but Israel stated that knowledge and learning was for all. It was H.G. Wells who once wrote that, quote, the Jewish religion, because it was a literature-sustained religion, led to the first efforts to provide elementary education for all the children in the community, end quote. And Rabbi Sachs builds on this quote from Wells by noting that in contrast, quote, universal literacy is a relatively recent idea in the West. Compulsory education was not instituted in Britain until 1870, end quote. Thus, the few letters on the Gezer calendar, if they were written by a random Israelite child on a farm, tells us something important about the origins and endurance of Judaism. And the very fact that this tablet contains letters rather than symbols is critical. In a fascinating lecture at the National Library of Israel, Rabbi Sachs notes that the existence of an alphabet, where a mere 22 letters could be used to produce descriptions of anything, made possible the spread of literacy. And this, ultimately, is what makes Abraham's people possible, Abraham's faith possible, Israel's celebration of learning and literacy possible. Here are by Sachs's words, quote, Writing has been independently invented seven times in different parts of the world. Mesopotamian cuneiform, Egyptian hieroglyphics, the Chinese ideograms, the Indus Valley script, the Minoan script known as Linear B, and later the Mayans and the Aztecs. But, Rabbi Sachs continued, there is a problem with writing. Whether writing takes the form of pictograms or ideograms or syllabaries, those early writing systems all involved a very large number of symbols. From the Chinese, which had 40,000 different symbols, it takes 20 years to learn 40,000 different symbols, to even the most stripped-down basic demotic hieroglyphics, which got it down to 450 symbols. That is still an enormous amount. When there is writing in the form of these pictograms or ideograms, the result is a hierarchical society because only an elite will ever know how to read and write. They are the knowledge class, and the masses are illiterate and therefore powerless, end quote. But an alphabet, Rabbi Sachs further argues, allows for a literate society because, as he further puts it, quote, if you can articulate all the knowledge in the world with a simple set of only 22 characters, for the first time in history, you have the possibility of a society of universal literacy. That is the thing that makes Judaism a revolution in human history, because it is literacy that is at the heart of human dignity as Judaism understands it. When you have a society of universal literacy, you have the possibility of a society where every one of whose members can be seen as the image and likeness of God.
end quote. So Rabbi Sachs said, and that means that the child of Sukkot would have learned to write on a tablet, much like the tablet that sits today in Istanbul. And though what that child wrote for Gideon was used by Gideon in a way that reflected the disintegration of Israel's national mystic cords of memory, nevertheless, throughout the centuries that followed, it was Israel's emphasis on literacy and education, on the spread of knowledge, on the continual teaching of Torah that allowed for the preservation of Jewish identity, Jewish memory, as well as for the preservation of Hebrew, of the language of the land of Israel. We are now able to fully understand why this tiny tablet in Istanbul is so inspiring, why it is so moving to ponder what may well be the handwriting of a child that lived thousands of years ago in the land of Israel. This child is learning to write, and what he writes is a poem about everyday agricultural life, about the need to bring forth crops in the Holy Land. He writes about the seasons of the land of Israel. And then, ladies and gentlemen, there is another word at the bottom of the tablet that is not part of the poem. His name, Aviyah, God is my father. With a bit of imagination, it becomes so incredibly inspiring. An Israelite, perhaps an Israelite child, practices the writing of Hebrew in an agricultural, astonishingly literate society thousands of years ago, highlighting simultaneously Jewish ingenuity and Jewish connection to the Holy Land. And then, after he etches out his poem, he takes the time to sign his name, and his name says it all, Aviyah, God is my father. Israel will continue to write, continue to learn, and Israelites will use their writing first and foremost to preserve their unique relationship with God and the learning of the Torah that God gave them. And they will preserve, as well, the memory of the land of Israel and of Hebrew, the language of the land of Israel, so that the Jews could ultimately return to the land, resurrect the Jewish state, and resurrect Hebrew as a spoken language in a flourishing society. Soon after, Emanuel Jacobowitz became chief rabbi in England. A Jewish community center in London was visited by someone who was then the minister of education in Britain, a woman by the name of Margaret Thatcher. Rabbi Jacobowitz showed her the mezuzah, the sacred scroll containing the Shema on the door of the center, and he told her that a central verse on this piece of parchment was Vishinantam Livanecha, teach thy children. Many years later, when as prime minister, Thatcher spoke at Rabbi Jacobowitz's retirement party. She still remembered that moment, and she described it as follows, quote, Lord Jacobowitz and I first met when I was Secretary of State for Education, and we began by discussing defense of a different kind. He impressed me with a remark which I shall long remember. You are really the Minister of Defense, he told me. And he meant, of course, that after what is learned in the family, it's what is taught at school that keeps the nation whole and strong. This has always had a particular significance to the Jewish people, who are, as the chief rabbi has put it, a tiny faith community counting only some one dozen million people together, widely dispersed throughout the world for whom education has become the principal instrument of national defense. End quote. In the tale of Gideon, we see the seeds of future disunity and ultimately disaster. But in one striking sentence, we also find one of the reasons why the very people described in the book of Judges, still lives. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.